one of our greatest national treasures lies in the heart of Yellowstone National Park. Old Faithful, as it is called, is a geyser that erupts on regular intervals. How many of you have ever seen Old Faithful? Ever been? Okay, I have. It's, it's quite an amazing sight. At a rate of 17 times a day, Old Faithful makes it a regular habit or practice to erupt its water for all to see, thus earning its well-deserved name that has, quite frankly, drawn tourists from all over the world to come and see its regular pattern, its faithfulness uh, on display every single day. Well, this morning from our text, um, the author of Hebrews uh, challenges us to consider not physical faithfulness, like Old Faithful physically is there and erupts and everybody takes pictures and has a good time, but a spiritual faithfulness. So this morning from this text, I would like to challenge us all to be a faithful believer. Be a faithful believer. By the term believer, I mean a follower of Christ. Someone who has, by faith, accepted his sacrifice and placed uh, and, earned, and, and gained eternal salvation. Be a faithful believer. You say, Pastor, well, how can I do that? How can I be a faithful believer in a, quite frankly, an unfaithful time where people are abandoning the faith in large numbers? How can I be a faithful believer? Well, let me give you three actions that you can take, you and I can take, uh, to help us to be a faithful believers. The first one from verses 19 through 22 is we generally approach God. I got, I got to tell you, as, as we, before we get in, I was really excited this week because actually here's one of the passages where the author of Hebrews stops his discussion and starts challenging his readers personally. And this made it really easy than it has been in previous weeks to come up with an outline because working through the logic that the author of Hebrews displays has been a challenge. But here I'm really excited because it says, let us, let us. So there's, there's my three main points right there uh, as we, we draw on this text. But we generally approach God. Notice what he says in verse 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Our approach to God is enabled by what Christ did for us. This is, this is what we've been talking about the past few weeks. The sacrifice of Christ, what he did on the cross, that has enabled us to approach God. The word boldness there means a state of boldness or a mindset, if you will, of confidence, fearlessness. No longer is fear to describe one's interest to God as it was in the Old Testament. If you remember the story of Moses in the Ten Commandments, one of the commentaries on that story noted that the people were afraid to come to the mountain because of the fire and smoke and, and everything that was going on on top. And throughout the Old Testament, even though God commanded people to come, people were still, still came in fear, approached God fear. They didn't know if their sacrifice was going to be accepted. They had to go through different stages, different uh, ways of doing things, and they had to be done perfectly or else their sacrifice wouldn't be accepted before God. So there was fear guiding their response. But now for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, it is no more fear but confident assurance of acceptance by God through Jesus. 
Let me, let me pause there just for a second and say, aren't you glad that you can come boldly before God? That you do not have to come in fear, wondering if God will accept you? You've already been accepted by faith in Christ. You can come boldly, not arrogantly, not brashly, not you know, stomp in front of God and say, this is what I want, but confidently, knowing that he will accept you by faith through Christ. He also notes that because of Christ's sacrifice, we're able to enter into God's presence. By the blood of Jesus shows the method of our approach. No longer is it through animal sacrifices or proper dress and bathing and all these different rituals that were prescribed in the Old Testament law. No, it is through the blood of Christ that we are able to come before God to the holiest or the holy of holies representing God's presence. And again, are we not thankful this morning that we don't have to go through the rituals of the law? We don't have to. We don't have to. Here's how specific it was. If you go to Jerusalem today, you walk around the city, you will see different excavation sites. One of them, which is right next to the Temple Mount, is these theories of baptismal pools or bathing pools. And what's interesting about these bathing pools is that there are two steps, two stairs to them. And the reason for that is, is that whoever came to worship bathed themselves ritually. They walked down the step, bathed themselves, and then turned around and walked back the other side to go out. Do you know why that was? So they wouldn't be ritually unclean. They went down unclean, they came out clean, and walked out the other side. Okay, we don't have to do that. We don't have to make sure our, our clothing and our fabric was, is right. We don't have to make sure that the animal sacrifice we're bringing is perfect. We come by the blood of Christ. And so come confidently, not timidly, not in fear, not worried whether or not God will accept you. If you've received Christ by faith, He does accept you now, right? And so you and I need to come confidently, boldly before Him. Thirdly, because of Christ's sacrifice, we have a new way to God. Look what he says, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. What does the word consecrated mean? It means to, to bring about the beginning of something new, something newly established. The new method which we've talked about the past few weeks, Christ's sacrifice, was different from what the Old Testament required. It went above and beyond to the point that it is new and living. Those words describe a unique way to God. It's different from the Old Testament way because the Old Testament way had these, again, steps you had to go through and you had to go through them every day and every week and every, every year. But now through Christ, you have a, a way that is living and, and vibrant and alive and not dead and ineffective like it was in the Old Testament. And this new way is accomplished through his body given on the cross. That's the idea of the, the, word, the phrase, through his veil that is his flesh. Again, there's a play on words here in grammar. The veil in the Old, in the Old Testament temple separated man from God, right? It was this thick cloth that was designed to keep the presence of God from the presence of man. 
And every year on the Day of Atonement, the, the priest went in to the Holy of Holies through that cloth, through that veil, made the sacrifice, and then left. And when Christ died on the cross, what happened to that veil? It was ripped, signifying that there was no longer needed a divide between man and God. Man has now free access before God. Hebrews 10.5, we looked at this uh, a couple of weeks ago. This was fulfillment of, of God's will. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. The sacrifice of Christ was necessary, and it gained us a new way to God. And also because of Christ's sacrifice, we have a great high priest who intercedes for us before God. We looked at that through Hebrews chapter 5 through 8, right? We saw this, this great high priest who was, who was patterned after Melchizedek, but yet is greater than Melchizedek, who has fulfilled everything that the law required for a high priest to be. And he is a high priest over the house of God. The idea of the, the house of God is, is over God's people, both locally and universally. We have a great high priest. So because of this, because of this truth, the boldness that we are uh, in a new and living way, secondly, notice that our approach to God is encouraged. Verse 22, because of this truth, verse 21, verse 19 through 21, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What was that word, let us draw near? It's, it's constructed grammatically to be an encouragement to an action. In, in, in technical terms, uh, if, uh, grammar, I don't, you, for you grammarians out there, it's a horatory subjunctive. Basically, it's an encouragement to an action, okay? I know you were just came to church looking for that one piece of grammar there. That's what it is, okay? Uh, and interestingly enough, the author of Hebrews is encouraging himself in that conversation, right? He said, let us. He doesn't say you. He says us, together. He needs to do this too. Come draw near. I liken it to high school. Think back to your high school days. Some of you, that was eons ago. Uh, I'm not saying you're old. I'm just saying it was a long time ago. Um, if, if, if you remember your high school days, and you remember going and sitting in the cafeteria or sitting at, at practice, and there was a group of you, how easy was it for someone to say, hey, let's go do this, and everyone else agreed? Right? How easy was it for you to, uh, maybe it wasn't, but for someone to speak up and say, hey, let's run down to Dairy Queen and grab something to eat, and everybody would say, yeah, let's do it. Why did you do that? Because someone mentioned it, and they encouraged everybody to come, hey, how about let, let's do this? And for the majority of the situations, a lot of agreement was had, even in a negative sense, like, let's go throw toilet paper all over the teacher's house and just have fun there, okay? So both positive and negative. That's the idea, encouraging to an action. He's not commanding it. We still have a choice here, but he's encouraging, encouraging us to draw near. Which, which points up another, brings up another point. God does not make us come to him. Right? 
God does not force us to come to him. Instead, he opens up the way to his presence and leaves the choice in our hands whether we will come or not. Right? God, God doesn't need you and I to come to be, continue to be God. He doesn't. He doesn't need you and I to um, maintain his existence. God doesn't need us. But yet he invites us to come. He wants us to come, but he leaves the choice in our hands. And let me just pause and ask, are you willingly coming to God in your Christian life? As you walk by faith through the ups and downs of life, the challenges and the trials, are you willingly coming to God or are you avoiding that? God invites you to come. Whether you're, you're, uh, you're uh, a, a believer who has been saved for a long time or a short time, He invites you to come. He wants you to draw near. You remember the passage in Isaiah where Isaiah is communicating to the people what does God say about our sin? He said, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. God invites you to come and, and, and to be, uh, have your sins forgiven and to, to be growing in your walk with Him. But we have to make the choice to come. Are you willingly coming to God this morning? Third, we have a personal obligation to perform when approaching God. We come genuinely with confident faith. Let's draw near with a true heart. What does the word true mean? It means to be, to, re, be, be, ugh, to be real, genuine, or authentic. It, it, it's, it's the, the idea is, is openness. Um, nothing is held back. There's no deception God delights in a true, genuine heart that approaches Him, not one which is full of hypocrisy and lukewarm affection. There are many hypocritical Christians today. And God does not want a hypocritical heart. One that says one thing and then does another to approach Him. So are you being real or hypocritical in your Christian life this morning? If we were to look at your life, would we see a hypocrite? Someone who comes on a Sunday morning and says the right words and sings the right songs, but then goes home and lives however you want? Or would we see a real, genuine Christian who struggles in their faith? The idea of being real in the Christian life is not always this happy-go-lucky, you know, everything's fine. Being real in the Christian life is mean you be honest with your struggles. You be honest with your, your, your uh, challenges in your walk of faith, your temptations to doubt, your fears. God, God does not want you and I just to come perfect. <laughs> We're not. God wants us to come to Him in faith, being real with Him where our heart is at. So if you're struggling this morning, if, if you're walking through some deep valleys, you still need to come to God. You still need to draw near to Him. If, you, if you're on the mountain peaks this morning, God has worked in your life and He's doing some great things and you're encouraged in your faith, you still need to come to God. He asks you to draw near to Him. He asks you to be real with Him in your heart. 
So are you hypocritical? Or are you real with God this morning? Notice also that he says, in full assurance of faith. What does that term mean? Full assurance of faith. It means to, to come with a complete state of certainty. The, the illustration I might give is, is uh, along the lines of um, you know, just being, being confident, being certain about a particular issue. We, we, might, we might draw the illustration of a historian. What historians are well known for being having the facts right and having the, all the, uh, the issues down. So when it comes to questions of history, they can answer them. Not, not in matters of opinion, but in matters of fact. So when we approach God, we can come with certainty because of our faith. Not because of um, the works that we do. This is not the law. This is the confidence of our faith. The faith that we have in Christ is because of what He did and not what we did. So we can come genuinely with confidence, with boldness, with complete certainty that because of what Christ did on the cross, our faith in Him gives us access to God. Notice also, fourthly, that we approach God free from sin and its defilement. Having our hearts sprinkled with an, with a evil, from an evil conscience and our heart bodies washed with pure water. The idea of sprinkled means to cleanse oneself of impurities. The word wash means to be cleansed ritually of any impurities. So it's covering both gamuts. And it's done to us. Notice, having, been, having our hearts sprinkled. It's not something we do. It's something that's done to us because of what Christ has done through His sacrifice on the cross. So both body and heart come to God being cleansed of what defiles them before Him. We are cleansed by God spiritually so that we may be accepted in His presence. We're cleaned up. It's Isaiah 6. Remember the passage in Isaiah where Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I, I, he says, I'm a sinner. I'm, I deserve death. What does God do? God cleanses him from his sin so that he may enter into his presence and learn the message that he is to give to the nation. We are cleaned up by God because of Christ so that we may boldly approach him. And that leads me to ask this morning, by way of application, are you confidently approaching God in your Christian life? We looked at this several weeks ago in, in Hebrews 4, verse 16, but it bears repeating. I, you know, there's a reason why repetition works. Repetition works because it, it brings, drives home a point. Let us therefore, verse 16 in chapter 4, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are you boldly coming to God in your Christian life? Again, not in perfection, not claiming to have it all together, but are you confidently coming to God and saying, God, I need you. God, I'm struggling today. God, I need you today. I don't know what you're doing, God. God, can you help me today? God, God invites us to come to Him boldly. Not timidly, not fearfully, not wondering if, okay, well, should I or shouldn't I? Come boldly before God. Even in, even in your complaint, the book of Psalms. People think about the Psalms as being this bright, cheery guy who sings praises to God. You read the Psalms, Psalms is pretty dark at times. 
It's pretty, pretty um, sad. Pretty dis- uh, much, well, I shouldn't say pretty much, but a lot of it is, of it is despair and struggle. What, what is it the psalmist saying? I think it's Psalm 18. I'm probably wrong on that. But he says, this poor man cried. How many times in the Psalms does it say, I, I cried unto the Lord. I, I, I made my complaint before the Lord. You can come and complain to God. There's nothing wrong with that. But be prepared to God, for God to answer you, you in your complaint and correct your thinking. But still come to God and complain if you need to. Come to God and cry out to him. Come to God and, 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 and come to God frustrated. You know you can come to God frustrated? How many, how many times was, was the disciples just frustrated with Jesus at what he was doing and he calmly addressed them where they were? You can be frustrated when you come to God. That's okay. But still come to him. Because that is where the truth is found. That is where our faith is restored. And that is where our walk with the Lord is challenged and grows. Us standing here and, and on the outside in life and just wondering about this thing or that thing, worried about this thing and that thing, being frustrated and, and just upset, all of that is not going to be helpful in our Christian life if we don't take it to God. If we don't boldly approach Him for help. Second action that you and I need to take to be a faithful believer is to never let go of our hope. We never let go of our hope. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Notice several things about this, this, this point. Our grasp is firm. That, that word, let us hold fast, it means to adhere firmly to traditions, convictions, or beliefs. Again, the grammar here emphasizes holding on to something and never letting go. Again, this verse points to an encouragement to an action. The, re- the readers of Hebrews and us today are, t- are encouraged to take a firm hold on the truth that we've been taught. Not, not abstractly, but personally. Taking the truth that we've been taught through his word and holding on to it, grasping it, never letting go. And what do we grasp? What do we hold on to? What do we have a tight grip on? We have a tight grip on our hope in God. The confession, the word confession means a statement of allegiance as the content of an action, an acknowledgement that one makes, a confession that I agree with this. And in this case, it's the word, it's the hope. The hope is the faith that we have in God and His revealed Word. This is our hope. What God has promised is our hope. His Word is our hope. And God alone is the source of that hope. So that's who we hold on to. That's what we hold on to in our Christian life. And notice how we do it. This is interesting. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. The word wavering here means to, to be unswerving or unbending. And the idea behind the word, the usage of the word here, is that it shows that whatever it faces, the grip does not lose its hold. Whatever comes its way, 
Whatever it faces, it doesn't lose its hold. It stays firm. I don't know if you've ever seen these, but there, there's, there's contests that happen out there, um, whether through company, I don't know how they happen, but I've seen some online where people come together and they, they either touch a, an object or a thing, and the challenge is to keep touching it, and the last person to be, remain standing, as it were, gets that prize. It can be anything from a car to, uh, I've seen a thing full of cash. Um, I don't know if, maybe I'm confusing you a little bit, but the idea is you touch something and you never let it go. Because if you let go, you're out. Right? You don't get the prize. And, and these are days of contests. People touching a car, you know, they're trying to win a, a brand new Jaguar or some type of vehicle, and they're just touching, they're trying everything they can. It's kind of funny to watch. You know, they'll just they'll make sure they stay touching. They won't, you know. Why? Because they don't want to let go. The, the prize is in there. I saw one, there's $70,000 worth of cash. There's a bag of $70,000 worth of cash in there. They're challenged not to let, go, not to let it go. I'm, I'm not letting go of that opportunity. 70 grand? They're, they're, they're just going to keep their firm hold. Why? Because they don't want to lose what they're offered. And we have something because of what God has done for us that he offers to us that will never be let go, yet we're still supposed to hold on to it. We're still supposed to grasp it, take firm hold on it. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. What does that, that phrase mean? Our, our grasp of the hope we have remembers God. Here, here's the motivation. Here's the reason. It's not that we're going to get blessings, although those come with the Christian life, right? It's because God promised it to us and he is faithful to fulfill it the word promise means to declare to do something with the implication of carrying it out god is described here as the promise keeper who is bound to do what he promised by himself hebrews six thirteen. we looked at this a few several weeks ago when talking about God's promise to Abraham, the author notes, for when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by whom? Himself. God will always keep his promises. He is faithful to do so. There is no question of that. So that gives you and I proper motivation to hold on to the truth. To hold on to our hope. You say, Pastor, this morning, that's really hard. You don't want what I've been through. There's just been struggles. I've lost my mom or my dad. I, I've just hit a crisis in faith, and we all go through that. It's true. We all have struggles in our Christian life. But that should never delineate, delineate our, our grasp. It should never cause us to loosen our grasp. He who promised is faithful. God will fulfill it. When God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, He will fulfill it. Right? He will always do that. And so hold on to that. If anything else, hold on to that truth. Find a truth this morning. I'll just challenge you. This week, find a truth from Scripture about who God is and hold on to that. Make that, if there's something you're struggling with in your personal life, in your, in your uh, corporate per work life, in your family life, if there's something that you're struggling with, find a verse of Scripture that speaks to, to the truth of God, to that issue, and hold on to that. Put it on your refrigerator. Put it on your wall. Do something. 
Hold on to the truth. Why? Because God, who has promised, He is faithful. He will do it. We saw that in Ezekiel this morning, right? You remember back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, uh, as God is, is writing to the nation, and He's saying He will restore them. He will give them a new heart. He will be their God. He doesn't say... The, for your sake, but see, says for my sake. Look at, listen to verse 36. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. When God promises something, He's going to do it. You and I could, can, should never doubt God. When he says something, he will do it. And he is trustworthy. He will never fail. So as we firmly hold on to the hope we have, we remember that God will faithfully complete what he has promised. This is our motivation. To keep our grasp firm. It's also a challenge. It's also a reminder, excuse me, that the, the, the ability to hold on to the hope doesn't come from us. It comes from Him. See, see, if you and I were left to our own devices and left to hold on to the truth, uh, truth of God's Word, most oftentimes I would say we would fail. Because we can't do it in our own strength. This is only enabled by what Christ has done for us. That, that's going back to verses 19 through 21. We are able to do these things because of Christ. Because of what he's done. So how's your grip this morning? Is it firm? Is it loose? Is it shaky? Is it getting tighter all the time? Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. God has promised you and I so much in Christ, and all he asks us to do is to grasp it, hold on to it, because he will do it. So how's your grip? That's a question you have to ask for yourself. How am I holding on to the truth? Am I doing so with, with fear and trembling or am I confidently holding on to it, acknowledging my need of God to do it? Because that's the only way it's going to get done. Then thirdly, lastly, how do we be a faithful believer? We generally approach God we never let go of our hope. Then thirdly, we provoke God-ordained actions in each other. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Notice that we are to carefully think about executing these actions. That's the word consider. It means to, to carefully think about, ponder, envision. The implication of this word is that we think deeply about the action and then make a plan to do it. So, so, so there's, there's thinking involved, and some of you are like, well, well, thinking, wow, that's hard. Well, it is. But there's thinking and then doing, right? 
Because we're all good thinkers this morning. Not so much on the action part. We, we, we think to act. We plan to act. Again, the grammar is this is something we're all supposed to do. It's not enough to think about doing something. We need to plan those actions out and then do them. God never intended us for, just to be, for us just to be thinkers. When Paul, in the book of Acts, goes to Athens, you remember that story? He goes and he goes, he, he goes through the city. The spirit is stirred up because of the idolatry. And he goes to Mars Hill. And Mars Hill was a place where people from all over came to talk and to think. And the scripture also says that most oftentimes they only came there to hear some new thing. They were thinkers. You're Aristotle and Plato. All these great philosophers. They thought things through. They talked about things. And most oftentimes they really didn't act on them. They didn't plan those things out. They just talked about them. God has always intended for his children to act. Not just think. So are you a thinker this morning? Are you an actor? Are you, are you acting on what God has commanded us to do? Let us consider what? We are to incite each other to complete these actions. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Um, I was reading that, and I don't like the way the King... I'm using New King James. I don't like the way the New King James has worded that. Because um, in the original language, I think the emphasis here, and let us consider to stir up one another. Okay? So, so that, that phrase, stir up, and it's not an infinitive, it's a verb. Okay? So it's, it's not a, yes, it's an action, yes, there's purpose behind it, but it's not in, the way it's written, it says to stir up. It, it literally says, and let us consider how to stir up, or stirring up. Let us consider how to stir up one another. What does the word stir up mean? It means to arouse activity. It's, it's used a lot in the, in the, in the ancient uh, texts in a negative fashion. Uh, but here it's positive. It's meant to show purpose in its display. The best illustration I could think of, and there's probably a better one, but the one I came up with is a cattle prod. You know what cattle prods are for? Get animals moving. I'm not, not, suge- I'm not suggesting you take a cattle prod and go, go up to your fellow believer and say, okay, now do love it, good works, come on, get going, stimulate activity in your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not what I'm saying. Not saying go up to their door and knock on their door and start beating them on the head. And say, hey, when are you going to do? When are you going to love? When are you going to do some good works? No, that's not, not not what the emphasis is. It's considering, planning how we are to stir that up, incite that in ourselves, so that there is action. How are we going about in our daily lives as a as individuals, as believers, as a corporate body of Christ to stir up action in ourselves? We provoke one another. We incite that. What do we do? We provoke one another to show love and practice good works as God commanded. The word love here is the word agape. It's, it's love that expresses interest in others and puts others, surf, others first and itself last. This is the fulfillment of Christ's words in John chapter 4, verses 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You're putting each other first, intentionally seeking each other out and displaying that love. 
What do the good works mean? It just points to the rightful actions that we are to display as believers. So it's visiting the sick. Excuse me. It's doing one's own work well. It's not being a busybody. It's not being a liar, but a truth teller. It means having something to provide for someone who is in need. All of these things are what we are commanded to do. Those are the good works. Second Thessalonians three thirteen through fifteen says, "As for you, brothers, do not be weary in doing good." Paul warns, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. What is he saying? Paul's saying, you know, make sure everybody does good. If someone doesn't do good, then admonish him. Encourage him to do so. We're all supposed to be doing good works. We're all supposed to be actively stirring one another up to do what God commands. You say, Pastor, what does that look like? They may, that may look like sending a text. Doing a phone call. Say, hey, can, can you, how about you and I go visit so-and-so today? Or, or do you have time this week for coffee? I'd like to talk to you for a minute. We're all supposed to stir one another up to love and good works. Provocation, lastly, doing what God commands, has two obligations. Not forsaking each other and encouraging one another. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What does that word forsaking mean? It mean, has the idea of to separate connection with someone or something. Here the emphasis is on abandonment. Jesus uses his word on the cross in Matthew 27, 46. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the word. Abandoned. What are, we, what are we not to abandon? The assembling, the gathering of ourselves in a, in, a, in a specific location for worship. The gathering of ourselves together, the body of believers. And apparently in that time there were believers who had stopped meeting together. Whether because of persecution or laziness. As is the manner or that the word can mean habit. Customary behavior. That is not to be our attitude. They'd stop meeting. We must meet together because we need each other and God. This, this is not about church attendance. Okay, <laughs> That's what this is not about. This is not about coming every Sunday and every Wednesday. That's not what this is about. This is not abandoning the assembling of ourselves together as a body of believers. Because we need each other. We need God. You remember COVID? When COVID hit a couple years ago, how we all had to, to stay home and all those, all those different things. Do you remember how much we missed each other? Do you remember how much we missed fellowshipping and worshiping together? No service at home replaces that. As much as those ministries are effective, and I encourage streaming options for those who cannot come because of physical disabilities, because of illness, I encourage that. I think that's a good thing. But that does not replace the assembling of ourselves together. When we first started open back up, when I came and, and uh, services and such, there were several people who started attending saying, hey, we just want to come and worship. <laughs> we want to be together. God intended it that way. 
There was one gentleman who went to the Northwoods Bible Church, Pastor Corey, rented a lot down and he say, came into the service and said, do you sing here? Because the church he had been attending had stopped singing. He just wanted to sing. He wanted to be part of worship together as a body of believers. God created it that way. Let's not forsake it. Let's not stop meeting because of this thing or that thing. We all need each other. To do what? In exhorting or encouraging one another. What does the word exhort? It means to, to urge strongly, appeal to, encourage. Rather than abandoning each other, we are to encourage each other in our walk of faith. That's why we meet together on a Sunday morning and on a Sunday afternoon and on a Wednesday. We meet together to encourage one another because let's face it, life is hard. We have struggles. And I can't do the Christian walk of faith by myself. Tried that. Doesn't work. We need each other in our walk of faith. And encouraging one another is needed because of God's imminent return. That's the phrase as the day approaching. The word day uh, used in Scripture refers to the day of the Lord. It can mean the entire day of the Lord, meaning God's eschatological program, what God will do in the last times. It can refer to a specific day, but I think what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's just using it in a general sense. God is coming back. God is culminating his plan, and we need to continue to encourage each other in light of that. This is a call to greater faithfulness. Not to abandon, but to encourage. Not to stop meeting because we think so-and-so has predicted when the Lord is coming back. Not to stop meeting because we don't, we, we don't feel like it. But meeting together to encourage one another because one day, whether by death or by His soon return, we will see Him face to face. And until that day happens, we encourage one another. We point each other to the truth so that we may face Him, not with fear, but with boldness. So let me ask you a question as I take a drink of water. Will you commit today to stirring up each other to do what God commands? Will you make that commitment today? I'm not asking for a raise of hands. I'm not saying, hey, you need to walk down the aisle. That's not what I'm saying. But will you in your own heart make a commitment today to provoke, to stir up in one another the love and the good works that God commands us? Now, you've you got to work that out for yourself. Whatever that looks like for you. But today, will you make that commitment to provoke, be that, be that cattle prod, be that, be that person who's that catalyst in another person's life to fulfill God's commands. I'm going to do that. How about you? Old Faithful has been consistent in its interruption for hundreds if not thousands of years. Yet that streak of consistency, faithfulness, does not come close to the level of faithfulness that God desires out of His children. How do, we, how do we be a faithful believer? We genuinely approach God, confidently, boldly coming to His presence because of what Christ has done for us. 
We never let go of our hope. We have a firm grasp that is dependent upon God and holds on to the truth, remembering that He's promised and He will come through. And we provoke God-ordained actions in each other. We stir each other up to do what God has commanded. So as we face new challenges this week, may all of us endeavor to be faithful to God until we see Him face to face.